Welcome back to The Stack. This week we speak with Edward Amsden, engineer at Talon and better known to the network as Ritpub Sibsile. We cover Cincinnati Chili, the warm dumpster runoff of JavaScript, the origins of React, Urchat FM, and New Mars. But first, the news. Hadaf Sigwin has shipped basic theming functionality for Escape or Escape by Ukbar or Ukbar. You can easily change the background photo and opacity of Escape, as well as change the borders to a pixel width of your choice. I like to change mine to 20 pixels and then shock unsuspecting women with my girth. I remember an untrustworthy ex-girlfriend whose favorite was apparently solid black. And Assembly 2022 is coming to Miami from September 22nd to 25th. Looking to rehabilitate our image as crypto-fascists in the eyes of the American elite, we have decided to have our annual conference in the Bitcoin capital of the Ron DeSantis state. Apropos of nothing, this follows on the heels of Andy and I getting hired to the Foundation's marketing team. Assembly 2023 will be in the People's Republic of China in an apartment complex in Shanghai. Personally, I'm a bit torn over attending Assembly. It's not because upon leaving China, it is doubtful I'd ever be able to return to my wife and children ever again. No, that's a sacrifice one makes to spend a weekend with urban people. But the same weekend, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship are gathering for their yearly conference at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon. The 200-year-old, 400-year-old question of Shakespeare's true identity has been getting hot lately, and I want to see what sort of new evidence these boomers are going to reveal. Will Alexander Waugh dazzle us with some newfound gematria implicating someone named John Oldcastle as Shakespeare's butler and lover? I can hardly wait. I tried a little gematria of my own today. Try to figure out this one if you have the time. It goes 474.346.885.925.987.664.028.008. First person to figure that one out gets a prize, as does the last. And now our conversation with Ritpub Sibsile. Do you miss Cincinnati chili? Yeah, I didn't get to eat it a lot while we were in Ohio. I ate it more when the first time I lived in Ohio, growing, which was just growing up. But we don't eat out. Um, combination of like, why spend the money? And my wife cooks better than like, unless you go to a top tier restaurant. It's, she just, she puts a lot of effort You can buy it. You can buy it in canned form. Yes, and it's not you can good. you can buy it in cans because my my college roommate, yeah, my college roommate was from um, was from Cincinnati, and he would like get care packages of um, uh, the the canned stuff, and then he would like make it for us, and it was it was pretty sloppy, mm-hmm. um, and so I I never had the real the real thing. You gotta um, you gotta find for, for a long time. You gotta find a skyline uh, like in Cincinnati to really enjoy it well do you like do you go the five way like um what is it like onions yeah there's like all sorts of onions like, onions garbage, cheese mustard yeah, just spaghetti. To, to clarify for everyone onions cheese yeah yeah oh. yeah because just for everybody to understand cincinnati chili is is not chili 
It's spaghetti. Yes, correct. It's uh, spaghetti with an interesting with, with tomato, on it. Uh, yeah. tomato meat sauce on top of it, but quite delicious. Um, I did one time arrive in Cincinnati very late traveling back from college and after multiple flights had been delayed and then I was supposed to have a short hop flight up to Dayton, which was um, much nearer where my family was living. And my grandparents wound up having to drive down to Cincinnati because they shut so the airport down <laughs> and Skyline was the only thing still open uh, in the airport. And so um, it's possible that a little bit of my nostalgic affection from it uh, comes from that uh, one particular meal where I hadn't eaten anything all day and had been on an airplane all day. <laughs> <laughs> like the Madeleine, Madeleine cookie. Yeah. Um, I had a similar experience when I came home from Japan which was that I was in the I was in the um, airport, came home from Japan, hadn't seen America for a couple of years. Uh, you know, elation hits, and I was a uh, I was wearing my or I was carrying around a duffel bag and wearing like a Marine Corps T-shirt or something like that. Uh, yeah, I was in the Detroit airport, and uh, they have I think that's the one with like the longest, the single longest um, concourse in the in the world or something like that. So it's going it? down this massively long concourse. I don't know. If it if it if it isn't, then maybe it wasn't Detroit. Who who can remember? The reason that I can't remember will become clear momentarily. Uh, yeah. So I was going down this massively long concourse, and uh, everywhere that I uh, yeah, like I was I was in the state of elation being back, and uh, this is around like two thousand three, two thousand four, like peak peak patriotism hysteria and um people were seeing me with the duffel bag and the marine corps t-shirt and assuming that i'd just come home from iraq or something so everybody was stopping me on the way down this concourse pulling me into a bar and like buying me buying me drinks and uh by the time i got to my flight like my connecting flight to atlanta so where my parents were going to pick me up at like you know 8 8 p.m or something like that by the time I got to my flight, they wouldn't let me on because I was too drunk, and so I had to take a I had to sleep on the sleep on one of the uncomfortable benches there. Call my parents on the phone, who were like already an hour into their drive to come pick me up and tell them to turn around. That that's unpatriotic. You mean, I'm, I'm just going to call that out of my parents. No, of the airport, the airline. Delta. Oh, to, to keep it, yeah, to keep me off the plane because I was too drunk. Uh, uh, no, I was going to say, I just, just by being slightly grouchy, have made Newark Airport or Airlines there at buy me a hotel room for the evening rather than sleeping on benches. So it's not strictly necessary. I didn't feel like I was in a great place, um, you know, ethically at the time. I wasn't being belligerent, but they took a look at me and said, this guy's a flight risk. And uh, told me I couldn't get on the plane. Were they wrong? I mean, you decide, America. Is this a good story? I don't know. All right. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. So, Edward, <laughs> the, um, uh, or Rit, Rit, Pub, Rit, Pub, Sipsal, Sipsal, the, um, you are the, among other things, you are the, the Linux guy. Oh, I run the Linux group. 
with the penguins group. I, I, right? I do run the penguins group. Yeah. And, uh, um, I do use Linux exclusively. I don't know if I'm the Linux guy. I just use it and there wasn't a group. So I made one. So how did you, how did you end up, how did you end up opening up the penguin? What was the, um, what was the need I had actually that you saw with, uh, I had questions about Linux and the nearest place I could find to ask stuff like that was in the forge, which is like an urbit development group. And I said, well, that's not the right spot. So I made a penguins group. And back then urbit index still had the, the group list. So I just posted the link in urbit index. Cause that's what you did. And I guess everyone decided, Hey, there should be a Linux group and joined. So it wasn't much more of a story than that. Yeah, Andy uh, started the cryptocurrency forum for the same reason, which is that he doesn't know anything about cryptocurrency. Um, seems to be a lot of that going on on Orbit. Yeah, I think that's a great I- irony, right? Is like um, you end up with people hosting groups because they don't they they during in the year two thousand twenty did not know anything about that topic, right? And then you end up owning that franchise. Yeah, pretty Probably much. infuriating people who infuriating people who know what something. About. Right, yeah. I, yeah, it, it, Urbit was just a, a an empty an empty vessel back in like early whatever, early 2020. Yeah, um I don't I know more about Nix than I do about Linux, and so I use Nix because it hides all of the weirdness of linux from me and replaces it with the weirdness of nix which i'm much more comfortable (laughs) fighting with um but um i use ubuntu for years and anytime there was a weird problem that came up it's like a one-off little script i'm supposed to run and then i have to remember it years later whereas with nix it's just sitting there in a source file waiting for me to put it back if i need it yeah, I have an I have an error sitting at the top of my of my uh, cli my my command line interface in um, Ubuntu on my desktop for the past three years. Uh, I don't know how to fix it. I, it doesn't affect anything except that every time I open my client, I have this error message at the top. And um, anyway, again, this is another story that I think is going nowhere. But uh, I just want to tell you that something something about ubuntu should i switch to nix um are do you enjoy programming in languages that are superficially like javascript but have lazy evaluation like haskell but then have dynamic types that most closely resemble python yeah that's what i like to do that's why i mean you've described pretty much my perfect (laughs) programming language i i I tend to describe nix as the javascript of uh build systems and package managers as in there isn't anything else to use but it has horrible i'll be honest i got really strong angry feelings i i have i have a hate-filled feelings for javascript now that i'm like in hoon school um javascript to me feels like um i've got to learn a dictionary of of functions like i've just got to learn all these different you know all these different functions to to do javascript it feels like i'm memorizing the dictionary instead of like programming um i don't know if i I don't know if hoon is going to get that way in the sense that at some point there will be all these massive libraries that developers have made and whatnot and then there becomes these kind of standard ways to do very specific things like i don't know 
uh, reduced or something like that, right? But at the moment, Hoon feels like very, you know, sort of smooth and and uh, logical, and JavaScript feels, yeah, as I say, as if I'm I'm having to just what? memorize a bunch of a bunch of stuff every time I want to do something. Yeah, one of the one of the excellent things about Urbit stems from the de the decision to make it a purely functional event loop. What that means, almost necessarily, is that the operating system calls applications and not the other way around. Right? So Arvo runs your agent via Gaul. So Arvo runs Gaul and Gaul runs your agent. Your agent it cannot do any... It's not running all the time like a uh, Linux program is, and then the kernel is sometimes interrupting it. Rather, um, it's exposing some endpoints uh, to Gaul, and Gaul is exposing some endpoints to Arvo, and Arvo is exposing a couple of endpoints to the runtime uh, that are invocable and then return a result. And the only way your agent has to produce an effect is to return something that will convince Arvo to produce that effect. And the only way Arvo has to produce any effect is to produce something that will convince the runtime to go actually produce that effect out in the wider uh, computing world. Uh, but what this means is that the relationship is almost inverted where there's not, in JavaScript, you have a lot, most of the function library is just like, how do I do this effect, right? How do I put an element here? Or how do I change this text here? Or how do I change this style here? And even in something like React, it's still like that, just glossed over a little bit. In the Urbit model, you are just emitting a data structure. So there's some, there is still some definition, but there's a protocol that's defined by which you are emitting a data structure as a result that is being passed back up and filtered back up where eventually it gets interpreted by the runtime. The runtime looks and says, there's literally like a cell with a tag that says something like, this is a network packet and here's the contents of it. Please send this network packet with these contents. Um, so again, what that uh, um, what that does for you is removes that tendency to build up that library of functions for effects, and so you're no longer really programming against uh, an API where your surface area is a bunch of functions. You're programming against a protocol where you'll be given some information about something that happened, and then you will produce some description of what you would like to see happen in response. So there are still functions, but those functions are just for computing A from B. They're all, you know, every function you can call in Urbit is a pure function. It doesn't have side effects. So the only way to produce side effects is to produce some result that will induce Gaul to induce Arvo to induce the interpreter to produce the effect that you want. Yeah, I feel like this is a very brilliant explanation of my, my feelings, so I appreciate that. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't possibly have uh elucidated why it is that I prefer Hoon over JavaScript, but but somewhere in your answer there is is my feeling, which is uh, which I can only stupidly sort of uh explain as as it it feels as if every time I'm working in Hoon I'm actually getting something done. And when I am working in JavaScript I'm looking around to find out what is the proper procedure that has been laid down for me for 
I don't know, uh, you know, comparing two lists with each other or whatever. Sure. Have you done any programming in React in JavaScript or is that something you've dealt yes, with? Yes, I have. Okay. So React actually... I, ha I mean, we... Oh, have we? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So React actually came out of a paradigm um, called functional reactive programming. Uh, I happened to have sufficient familiarity with it that I uh, wrote my master's thesis on it. But um, the... Um, I didn't by any means originate someone much smarter than me, uh, uh, a couple guys much smarter than me, Paul Hudak and Connell Elliott, I think, are the guys who were brilliant enough to actually come up with the idea. Um, but that was a very strong attempt to do something like this in sort of off-the-wall Terran languages, but Terran languages nonetheless. So things like Haskell. And there was something about the approach people liked, but it was hard to implement well. And this being Earth programming, compromises were made and more compromises were made and things were done for practicality's sake. And you wind up with systems like React. And React is miles better than trying to write web apps in raw JavaScript. And yet you still have that feeling of, well, I have to just memorize this library of sort of one-off bespoke effectful functions in order to get anything done versus when you're, again, when you're working in Hoon, the protocol specification for how a gall agent acts fits in your head. It, it's not, it's just not very big. And all you have to worry about is how to take your input and turn it into the output that you want in order to have those effects and worry about your state machine. And your function library is just there to help you do that. It's not this big necessary surface area that you have to program against all the time. Um, so Urbit's sort of uncompromising approach to its ideal of how programming should look and how systems should be defined actually leads to a better developer experience um, in a similar way to what a lot of people who program in Haskell think of. But then again, Haskell has to make compromises at some point because it is still earth programming. They haven't thrown out the entire programming stack. They're still tying, you know, the, I think, I would guess that the majority of Haskell code out there is written in the IO monad because the IO monad is still a nicer way of writing imperative programs than regular imperative programming, but it's still imperative programming in what's nominally a functional language. And uh, I've never seen a generally useful uh, FRP system. And I have attempted to make such a thing, and I have seen many attempts at making such a thing. Um, and everybody has to put, you know, again, you have to put shortcuts in somewhere, and then those shortcuts wind up dominating how you program in the system. What's your, um, what is your Urbit story? Like, how, how did you get um, plugged into the universe? And um, I think, are you officially with Tlon then now? Oh, yeah, I've been with Tlon since. August? 
think it's August. It was uh, a few months before we moved to Texas. Uh, I switched over to Tlon. The um, the Urbit story is essentially that um, I had a fairly comfortable job as a Haskell programmer, remote work, settled in where I was, and uh, I was on Twitter and always had in the back of my mind this sort of decentralization thing. I'd been talking with uh, some friends of mine about this. We tried out things like Secure Scuttlebutt, um, and I was highly aware of the uh, deficiencies of these systems. And actually, I should back up about six, seven years from that, because my first exposure to Urbit was actually when I was uh, pursuing my uh, doctorate at Indiana University, which I bailed on after two-ish years. Um, but while I was there, on uh, Sunday nights, there was a 3D printing and maker club slash um, hangout and uh, shoot the breeze club. There was a fun mix of uh, grad students and undergrads, like late Sunday night, Everybody realizes they have to go do stuff in the morning and no one cares. Uh, but there was uh, two undergrads there who started telling me about this guy named Curtis Yarvin, who I had never heard of before. And uh, this program, this system, <laughs> this system called Urban. <laughs> um, which, uh, and because I was in the, the specifically in programming languages research, um, telling me about how uh, he's got this language called knock. That's this like numeric combinator language and this language on top of it called whom and not doing a very good job of explaining it. And um, the particular undergrad in question had uh, some exploits uh, which rendered my opinion of his opinion of programming languages much lower than might have been helpful. Um, and the upshot of it was I was told about it and I was like, yeah, 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 right, whatever. Um, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing here. This is some weirdo, uh, trying to go against all established programming language, uh, convention. So fast forward to, uh, early late 2020 early 2021 somewhere in there um i have to go back and look at the ethereum chain and see when i bought uh ritpub but i had i had been on twitter and was watching people get banned left and right for um saying obvious things like uh um a certain election had been stolen and uh um you know men are men and women are women and uh a little bit under the knife doesn't necessarily uh change <laughs> what you are and um people started talking i think um duck was back on twitter briefly before he got banned again and he was talking about urbit and uh spandrel was talking about urbit and um some of the more like old boomer libertarian guys uh, were talking about Urbit. And I was like, 
okay, I, I, I know about Urbit, but it's this weird, like, programming language and universal namespace thing. What are they all doing with it? So I went and looked at it again and was like, oh, there's actually, this was I probably like a couple months after Landscape was released. Like, oh, there's actually something here. I can actually like use this and talk to people. Well, I started trying it out. And then when I looked into like the structure of the system a little bit more, I said, hey, I could use this as a decentralized way to set up uh, video calls. And so I went to the foundation and uh, pitched them a grant to do the, the WebRTC stuff. And that was... So probably like a month after I started using Urbit, I had a grant in a approved grant in hand from the foundation slash, which was, you know, foundation slash Tlon at that time uh, to do the WebRTC work and uh, haven't really looked back since then. So the WebRTC stuff um, for people who may not be so familiar, this is web I mean, RTC is a protocol for distant, Decentralized uh, are not video, decent is that right? Not decentralized, just peer-to-peer. -peer. These are not the same thing because RTC still requires... Oh, sorry, peer-to-peer, -peer, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. RTC still requires... A server. Out of something out of channel to set up the connection. RTC does not include its own setup right. protocol. Um, RTC and things like it are often what are used between like uh, VoIP phones, but you're using almost universally uh, mm -hmm. SIP session initiation protocol as the device to device protocol to set up the call. Um, WebRTC doesn't have anything like SIP. It uses usually the web server as the um, out of band channel to set up the call. So I wanted peer to peer video calls without a centralized server in between. It's like, well, okay, you already have your Urbit. Your browser can already talk to your Urbit. And your Urbit has the ability to just pass things back and forth. So your Urbit can handle the authentication and setup of the call without needing to carry the media itself. Because that will just flow browser to browser. And you can set up calls that way. It's the initial idea. Now the... Um, in practice, the architecture is evolving from that, uh, but that's sort of the the original and uh, sort of prototype proven uh, approach to doing uh, video calling on Urbit. So this is like a this is a sort of an, an MVP or just a just a proof of concept right. to show so, people that look we can do video. Yeah, so so that's actually a question I get a lot. Is like what happened to Urchat FM? Because uh, Urchat FM was written as a testbed application. The reason it's called Urchat is because it originally was literally like it used RTC data channels. So for sending like text strings back and forth between two web browsers. And you just had like a little chat window. And that was just to show that this, the signaling setup worked. And then I added video calling just to show that like, hey, this still works for video calling. So all of that works and the Urbit side stuff works and exists, but there's extra infrastructure you need to make video calls actually practical for the for the very fat long tail of people who don't have uh, 
one NAT between them and the internet on a gigabit fiber line. So, so you wind up needing to be able to, um, you wind up needing to be able to have infrastructure like turn servers, which are literally just like packet relay servers, but they help you deal with the fact that if both of you are behind uh, network tra- network address translation, like uh, public IP address sharing stuff, and it's the wrong kind of network address translation, it's very difficult to actually set up a direct connection. So you need some server with a public IP address that's just like relaying packets for you. Uh, for multi-way calls, you can set it up where everybody talks to everybody else, but this is extremely fragile and flaky. And so you wind up needing somebody to be running something that can actually kind of mux all the streams, get all the streams from everyone, mux them, and send them back out. So this is um, the turn server stuff is done and just needs to be tested. There's another person who has a grant for that. And then um, there's a grant sort of queued up and ready to go as soon as that's done uh, to um, build the integration of the uh, multiplexing architecture into Urbit. And then the last step would be to build a Jitsi-style um, room-based calling interface for Urbit. So the the Urbit side signaling channel exists and is done. It works. It has worked for several months now. It's just trying to build out that long tail of infrastructure to make it an actually usable experience. When you when you've got all of that stuff, so there's the sort of you know like so Jitsi room to room sort of thing. But um, is this same technology useful for let's say video streaming? you know, from one to many or, um, you know, like do, setting up a Twitch or, or the, it, I guess what's the, what's the, you know, uh, the pinnacle setting up your only fans. Andy, um, Andy's going to do that as soon as you have that te- technology yeah. available. Um, my, uh, religion prohibits me from, uh, directly cooperating with, uh, something like setting up OnlyFans. So I'll decline to answer the question as to whether it's useful <laughs> so, so or something does mine. like that. So does mine. But, um, but uh, the... No, how about something like Twitch though? Yeah, but but yeah, so it, there would be some architectural concerns because WebRTC is not really designed as a one-to-many streaming protocol, which means essentially somebody is going to be peering and sending packets to quite a num- large number of people with and this depending on how many people this is why things like cdns exist and there's probably solutions for that too um but this is i i see webrtc as sort of a way to take maximal advantage of urbit in its current form to use it as a communication tool it's like the pinnacle of like urbit as it's implemented right now uh with landscape as an interface for it land it's it's entirely possible to have landscape have group video rooms as things stand right now using the same sort of technique where urban is sort of coordinating things and passing text data around but you're not like urban's not rendering any uh urban's not rendering any chats right your browser's doing that it's like actually laying out the text or whatever and um 
Urbit won't be slinging any video around or um, processing any video frames or compressing or decompressing video. It's just going to be handling sort of those call setup and teardown messages and authentication to the call. Is that something though? I mean, from a totally novice, this is a totally novice question, but is that something that that um, is like a hard, is there sort of a hard speed limit for, for Urbit? Because I think right now people talk about the speed is like faster than Python. It can continue to be optimized. Will it be optimized to the point that it can, that it can do all those things itself? I believe so. With a combination of intuition and pattern matching onto known implementations of existing technologies. And the work I am doing right now is in, in my view of how this would progress, the first step to demonstrating that Urbit can do everything that your computer can do itself. I don't believe that there's necessarily any harder speed limit to your Urbit than there is to your PC. Um, and the reason for this is that the things, there's some things that people believe are just necessarily slow about Urbit that just are not necessarily slow. And then there are some things which are necessarily single threaded and necessarily synchronous. And for that reason, do have some diminishing returns in terms of how fast you try to turn the crank. But this is also the case for anything with a user interface, for instance, really for any reactive program in general. And the way that you solve for this is simply by not doing computation in that setting. So right now, the way Urbit's the way specifically the way Arvo is implemented, although this there's some necessary coupling between the way Arvo's implemented for this and the way that Ver expects Arvo to interact. Um, you do you get an event, you do all your computation in response to that event. And then you produce effects based on that computation. And this is just not the pattern that you use if you have a reactive system. This is not the wrong pattern for Urbit as it presently exists. This should be say, this is not a, uh, hey, why did they do it this way? This is the right thing to do when you're trying to build the system from scratch. This is the easy thing to do. It sets aside a whole class of hard problems for later. But in a world where Urbit goes as fast as Linux on your PC does right now, or as fast as Mac OS does on your M1, um, or uh, as slowly as Windows does on your gaming machine, it won't look that way just because there's a ceiling imposed by that architecture that we haven't hit yet because there's so many other things that also uh, contribute to it not going fast yet. So in that world, what it looks like is 
effects that the system wants that you want the system to produce you produce as sort of a blob of not computation that when the system's ready to go do that effect it can go run that computation of that effect as a separate thread it looks like uh, a peak or a scry uh, and probably is you just produce an effect that says for a network packet like please scry the body of the packet out from here and because it's a scry you can just run that on a separate thread and this is just the general architecture for fast reactive systems as you don't do computation on the event loop. Um, but before you get there, you have to actually be able to like compute knock at a reasonable speed. And you maybe you want to write knock and then write C equivalent to knock for all of your knock. Uh, but I don't want to do that. Um, and maybe it's just not possible to make knock go at uh, much faster speeds than it goes right now, but I think it is. And so that's what I'm trying to demonstrate. What's the, uh, when you say that's what you're trying to demonstrate, which project is that you're trying to demonstrate so on? This is, this is the, uh, the new Mars project. So new Mars is. Okay. Um, I, was, I was hoping we were getting there. All right. Yeah. So new Mars is the, um, uh, combines a couple of ideas. The first idea is one that was actually funnily enough, kicking around first in my head about the same time I first heard of Urbit when I was this, uh, um, I, I was in exactly the system that, uh, uh, beep, uh, doesn't, uh, does not appreciate in a couple of blog posts about CS and academia. Like I was in the sub-discipline of the sub-discipline of CS that uh, the one we're not naming uh, um, takes behind the woodshed. No, he's all right. His posts about uh, Curt <laughs> Curtis was... Yes. W w w no, it's 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 fine. I'm playing uh, oh, Sorry, no. Which which system was this that you were you just talking about academia or yeah, I know. Right, uh, right. You're, well, just, you're talking about academia in general or was he talking about a specific formal, subfield? Formal programming languages research as a subfield of programming languages research as a subfield of computer science. Um and, and okay. the basic the basic line of attack is it doesn't produce anything useful and any worthwhile work that's being done there should actually be done in the math department uh and the rest of it is all just a paper mill and it's not wrong necessarily well it's not wrong at all um although having been on the inside i know like the three useful things that have come out of it but so i had this idea kicking around like if you have a language that really actually has no side effects and no mutation um and is lexically scoped and all the rest of it. Um, so if you really are actually running like some typed Lambda calculus with no add-ons or doohickeys or anything to make it practical, you don't actually need a heap to allocate memory from. Um, so just, just briefly, uh, every programming language you run on your computer, more or less, well, it's probably fair to just say every programming language you run on your computer uh, including C, which your operating system is implemented in, and uh, a lot of your applications are implemented in, uh, uses a stack to keep track of the variables, roughly, in a procedure. And 
to say, okay, when you come into a procedure, you um, make some new memory next to the memory for the procedure that called it. It stores the variables. It also says, it also is where you actually save where to return to when the procedure's done. So when you produce a result from the procedure, okay, what are you doing with that result? You save that on the stack. Um, and then if you have dynamically sized objects or large objects or anything, usually anything larger than a single machine word, so a 64-bit number on your 64-bit processor, say, you usually will allocate that on the heap and then it will sort of sit there independently of what happens on the stack. The problem is once you've reserved that memory for that object, when you're done with that object, you need some way to clean it up. The two ways, that there are three ways that this is usually done. One is to just say, it's the programmer's job. The programmer has to say, uh, I'm all done with this memory by calling a procedure. So this, and if he does that too early and then tries to use whatever was stored in that memory after he calls that procedure to say free, that can lead to uh, program crashes and uh, security holes and all sorts of other nasty things. If he neglects to do that or does it too late, his program can consume far more memory than it needs to and actually make the program unusable because of its memory usage. So... In response to this problem, you have things like reference counting, which the current var actually uses to manage memory on its heap, which is literally just to say, okay, how many other things know about this object? And when we make a copy of something that knows about this object, we go to this object and we increment that counter by one. And when we throw away a copy of it, we decrement that counter by one. And so we do all this bookkeeping. If we do it right, then when it becomes zero, then we automatically say, okay, we're done with this chunk of memory. And then the last approach is uh, what's called garbage collection, uh, which uh, if I have my programming language's history light right, was around for a long time, but really became popular with the advent of uh, Java. And what garbage collection does is to actually look at your stack and say, okay, of the things on the heap, what does your stack know about? And then from those things, what else do you know about? And just go look, and then everything that's left in the heap that's not transitively known about from the stack, well, we don't have any way of knowing about it anymore, so we must be done with it, so throw it away. Um, the problem is that you, um, with very few exceptions that have other trade-offs, you have to stop your program while you're running this algorithm that has to traverse most of your memory. And so you get uh, the infamous uh, garbage collection pause, which is was always an issue for things like media applications, any kind of thing that's exposing an interface to the user that you don't want to occasionally like stop for half a second. And, but also for servers that are just running all the time and handling millions of requests all the time, many of which are written in Java. And so there's this whole really complicated line of research into how do we make garbage collectors that don't have to stop programs? And the answer is, well, it's, you can do it. It's very difficult and you have performance trade-offs other ways. So my approach was, okay, but hold on. Why don't we just grow the 
the stack frame, the slot of memory on the stack where the, we're storing all our variables and just put our objects there. And then we can use a limited form of what a certain kind of garbage collector does and just copy any memory that we need up to the parent stack frame when we return from a function. So we can return arbitrarily sized objects up the stack in this way. Now there are some limitations to this. Like I mentioned, if your language has mutation, if you can go in and um, after you've created a value, if you can go in and change it, this doesn't work. But you can't do that in knock. Every anytime you're changing something in knock, you're actually making a copy of it with some differences, right? Because um, it's a pure functional language. If you um, you have to also not have any way of introducing cycles. But the definition of nouns for knock is exactly this. It's a tree. In memory, it might look like what we call a directed acyclic graph where some things can come back and point at the same child, but a child can never point back up the tree uh, to an ancestor. So there's never a cycle. Um, so this this idea that I had kicking around in my head back in grad school, I looked at it and I said, you can do this. And what it means is when you need a piece of memory, so when you have a cell, when you're making a cell in knock, which we do all the time, when you're making a noun to uh, like for a gate call, you need to allocate memory for a gate call because you're actually making a copy of the gate and changing one thing about it, which is the, uh, the sample, the, where you pass the parameter in. And um, so you're not actually making a copy of the whole thing. You're sort of making copies of the cells along the path to what you're changing and then making the head the same thing from before and the tail something different or vice versa. But you still have to allocate some memory just in order to call a gate. In a system, even in a reference counted system where you have to explicitly free memory, this means that you actually have to do some indexing and bookkeeping to say what memory is in use and what memory is not um, and sort of merge smaller chunks of memory that are adjacent to each other so that you know you actually have one bigger contigu contiguous chunk of memory and that takes computational time every time you allocate and every time you free. In this setting, allocation is literally the fastest thing you can do on a CPU, which is just an arithmetic operation. You're just adding to a number, which is the um, the location, the the furthest advanced location in memory in the stack. So I got my stack frame here, and I just add x to the stack pointer, which tells me where the end of my stack frame is. And now I have x more uh, bytes, and I can use those x bytes in between where my stack pointer was and where it is now for my new object. So. Uh, this is called a bump allocator, and you literally cannot make a faster allocator than this. Um, and then for freeing memory, well, we don't. We just throw away the whole stack frame after we copy out what we need. So we touch the memory that we actually need, and we just, we literally just forget. We don't say anything explicit. We literally just forget about the memory we don't need. Um, and then the next time we push a stack frame, we'll just be writing back over that same location because we don't need it anymore. It doesn't matter what was in there before. Um, so, and this is 
very nice for a language like NOC or really for any functional language because almost everything you do in NOC is allocation, but most of what you allocate is only around for a very short amount of time. So in, in what's called a mark and sweet garbage collector, you go look at everything that you're throwing away and explicitly say, I'm getting rid of this, I'm getting rid of this, I'm getting rid of this. Um, whereas in a copying collector, a, which the new Mars uses a limited form of, you just say, I need this, so I'll copy it over here. I need this, so I'll copy it over here. Okay, I'm done with all the rest of that. I don't need any of it anymore. And you just forget about it. And so your the time that you spend managing memory is proportional to the memory that you're still at that you're actually still using at the time of memory management rather than proportional to how much memory you're having to free back up because you allocated it for use at one point but you're no longer using it um and knock just again knock just allocates all the time anytime you call a gate anytime you make a cell um anytime you make a well, in current VR, anytime you make an atom that's larger than 31 bits, uh, anytime, you know, you, anytime you enter a virtualization cut, all of this is just allocation. So if you're doing something a lot in computation and you want your computation to go fast, then you need to make that thing that you're doing a lot go as fast as possible. So that's one chunk of what I'm trying to do with new Mars. Um, the other side of the performance story is sort of to observe that we don't actually change the knock that we're running on our orbit all that often relative to how often we run it, right? In between upgrading an agent, upgrading Arvo, at, installing an app, whatever, how many times does your orbit go around its event loop right it's it's not it's a it's a many orders of magnitude proportion so it might be worthwhile to actually spend the time to compile knock and the current ver takes a step down this road. The current bear is what we call a bytecode interpreter. So it takes knock and it translates it into uh, sequences of instructions in a custom language that's only internal to bear that is optimized for a loop spinning over them really fast and interpreting them. So instead of looking at the knock tree and saying, okay, uh, this is a knock five. And so we have, um, another computation underneath it for the uh, first argument and another computation for the second argument. So I need to walk all the way down, recursively evaluate all that first argument, come back recursively up all that second argument, and now do knock five and compare the two things and see if they're equal and produce zero if they are and one if they're not. The bytecode interpreter sequences that out. So you're just spinning in a, uh, a loop through the instructions necessary to produce the equivalent result. So I looked at this and said, well, if we're compiling to bytecode anyway, why don't we just generate, say, LLVM IR? Uh, LLVM is the low-level virtual machine. Uh, it's a compiler backend uh, that 
is used by Apple and is used by a lot of stuff that runs on Linux. Uh, it's the backend for the Clang compiler, which is the other C compiler besides GCC. Um, and the C compiler on Mac pro uh, platforms. And, but it has a standardized format for what you're feeding the code generator. So if you can generate that, if you can compile knock to that and then ask it to actually generate optimized machine code from that. So take all the work that they've done in generating optimized machine code for particular platforms, then maybe knock could run at close to machine speeds. Maybe. Um, there's a problem here though, which is that uh, knock is uh, what we'd say very dynamic. Uh, every procedure call in knock is semantically equivalent not to a procedure call in something like JavaScript or Haskell or Java or take your pick, but actually equivalent to uh, something like eval in JavaScript. Uh, so a procedure call is like you you parse a program and it's a tree of operations and procedure calls, right? And so you just generate code for those. Eval is something where you say, I'm going to hand you in, in JavaScript a string. So at runtime, I'm going to compute a string and I'm going to hand you that string. So now I want you to jump back into the parser, compiler, code generator, whatever, and look at this value and interpret it as JavaScript, right? So, um, so you can't, the program cannot ahead of time know, not just like what values are going to be passed, but it can't even know ahead of time what code it's going to run. Optimization of any, even the sort of optimization that is, uh, here is a label, jump to it, as opposed to call your interpreter or code generator on this noun or this string or whatever, and this value and figure out what code it corresponds to dynamically. Any optimization depends on at least knowing what code you're going to run from this point. But knock doesn't have it. Like if you, if you're writing JavaScript and you have a function to sum up an array, I know there's a, a built-in function to do that, but you write a function sum that takes a JavaScript array and has a for loop and it, um, that's probably not a good example. If you have a function to, to annoy a user with a bunch of alerts in JavaScript, um, you have an array of different alert strings and you're going to for loop around and you're going to call alert on each of those strings. You know that the code you're jumping to is the code for alert, the code to make an obnoxious uh, um, intrusive modal pop up in your user's browser window. Uh, in knock, naively, you don't know this because the val the value that determines what procedure you're going to run is just a noun that is a tree of knock, but you could have pulled that from anywhere. It, usually it comes from your subject, but you don't ahead of time know your subject. That's because that's also how you get your input. Um, and this is actually this issue was raised by, um, and it's, it's 
the correct issue to raise. It is an actual question that needs to be answered about can knock ever go fast enough to be a practical general purpose uh, computing substrate. Um, but the people who were proposing the uh, SKU uh, revision, so instead of basing Urbit on knock, they were proposing to rebase Urbit or something like Urbit on a combinator language that corresponded closely to uh, Lambda calculus. So something much more uh, familiar to uh, programming languages people and with a lot more uh, a, a much larger body of work on like, okay, things like this, how do you turn them into actual sequential machine code that goes fast? So it's the right question to ask. With the, the Lambda calculus, there's like a, a hundred years or more of optimizations uh, research done there that they wanted to use. Right. The Lambda calculus pre-exists, uh, almost pre-exists computers. It may actually pre-exist electronic computers. I'd have to, they, it, it's a close run thing. Um, because the Lambda calculus was originally intended for uh, like foundations of mathematics stuff uh, until Kurt Gödel showed that you couldn't do foundations of mathematics essentially. Um, but it turns out, in fact, to be a very useful model of programming languages and a lot of things that we just take for granted in programming languages today, like the idea of having a procedure that has some arguments that you have access to within the body of the procedure and can define other variables that you have access to through the body of the procedure, but not elsewhere. All of those kinds of concepts originated in the Lambda calculus. Um, so it's an excellent, a very well studied theoretical tool for programming languages. It doesn't make a good uh, computing substrate for sort of a a definition of how you're going to do everyday computing because things like numbers or th things like data have to be awkwardly added in. In the Lambda calculus, there is only functions. And you can define a Lambda calculus that has numbers, but you have to add extra rules and very carefully prove that those rules do not suddenly make your nice formal calculus unsound. Knock is just like, hey, we use computers to deal with data. So here is data. Um, what it, Curtis, Curtis in the uh, the original Moron Labs post about Urbit said something like, uh, um, "Knock is a language for doing systems programming, not metamathematics. Its loyalties in this matter are not even slightly divided." Um, but because you're treating code as data rather than data as code you wind up with your procedure calls looking like eval naively, which is to say, I don't know what values I'm going to run my program with. I don't know what data ahead of time I'm going to run my program with, but even like the procedures I'm calling are data. So naively, I don't even know what code I'm going to run my program with, which is sounds a little weird, but that's kind of the situation that you're in. So the answer is to kind of, is to keep track of, to, to admit that you're not omniscient, but neither are you completely ignorant when you're looking at some not code and trying to uh, figure out what code to generate for it. And you, in fact, to represent uh, partial knowledge 
about uh, the subject and about the result of the computation given the partial knowledge about the subject. And so what you're shooting for is you know the parts of the subject that have the code in them. Um, so you um, every program that runs on Urbit roughly that isn't itself the Hoon standard library uh, has the Hoon standard library in its subject. That's where function everything from decrement to add to um, some of the virtual is uh, think are the virtualization functions in there they might be a layer up um, but uh, uh, all the all the functions you would assume you just have available to you for regular just value computation are in there and a bunch of others too uh, so you want to know you you want your as your taking this not program and turning it into machine code, you want to operate on the assumption that at this point in the subject, I have the code for add. And so when I knock nine, which is a effectively an eval slash procedure call in knock, and I, I can figure out, hey, the knock that I'm going to evaluate for the to, in order to produce the result of this knock nine is actually the knock for add. And so I'm just going to jump to the code for add and set up and tell it that its return pointer is, you know, further on in my code wherever I was going to return the result for the knock nine. If you can do that, then although in theory from the global view, you're taking knock and running against some arbitrary subject, in practice, a lot of our subject is fixed a lot of the time. And so if we generate code optimized for, hey, I know that this part of my subject is this, then you can restore this model where in practice, you actually know what code you're calling. And so in practice, you can generate code like it's a procedure call, even though we haven't changed anything about knock. Semantically, it still looks like a, um, semantically, it look, still looks like an eval. And this is what enables LLVM compilation to be at all advantageous because it's not just about calling a procedure because your, your call tree, um, I was tracing, so you're taking, so I was profiling Ames, looking at, you know, what part of the Ames code is, uh, taking the most time. And this was roughly the first thing I was asked to do when I showed up at Tlunk. like, hey, can we make Ames go faster? Because we're rolling out software distribution and we'd like to have some more bandwidth for Ames. Um, and the answer was essentially that just like procedure calls were taking the most time and you're stacking them like 10, 12 procedure calls deep something like that. But loops are also implemented this way. You can't do anything on a computer without a loop. And if every time you go through a loop, you have to go back and say, what was the code for my loop again? Oh, it's here. Okay. Maybe I cached it, maybe, but I still have to go look it up in a cache and now do what we call an indirect jump where I'm saying, Hey, CPU right now, when you've already gotten here, I'm going to tell you what memory address for your next code is, which blows away any optimizations that your CPU is doing, because your CPU in any modern computer is itself an optimizing compiler. 
uh, <laughs> you want to be able to, to have written down in your program ahead of time, hey, when you finish up here, you'll next be jumping to the code address such and such because then the CPU can just continue on, make sure it's already fetched those instructions, decoded them, you know, it's, it has pipelining going on, all sorts of things that if it knows, then it can just do. But if it doesn't know, it has to guess. And if it guesses wrong, it has to throw all that out and start again. And you're doing this in a loop that you might be going around 10, 100, 1,000, a million times. This, you know, it doesn't seem like much because if you think about once, it's a few nanoseconds or milliseconds or whatever, but it's where you lose performance. If you can do something uh, where you actually know what code you're uh, going to, then you can just tell this, you can build a loop from not code where you wrote your loop as a recursive call to your gate or as a, a trap, uh, you know, in Hoon, a, uh, uh, bar hep, where you say okay, a trap wanna... is where you like recurse to. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just recursion without explicitly any parameters, right? You can just recurse on your gate, but if you want to write a loop in the body of your code that's not your whole gate, then you use a trap. Yeah, so you with this kind of analysis, you can turn that into a loop that looks like the kind of loop that your C compiler generates run through the code you know there's a, probably a conditional there to break out of the loop so it's not an infinite loop you stop after some amount of time update some you know update some variables jump back and go through it again and just keep doing that until a conditional makes you jump out of it so um so this analysis is what i came to call the subject knowledge analysis because what you want to know is what do I know about my subject? What can I assume about the subject that my knock is running with? Because that's where I'm getting all of the functions that I'm calling. And if I know those functions and I'm not, and, and then the, here's the other tricky part, I'm not assuming the parts of the subject that are data because that could be state that's changing or that could be parameter coming into my function, right? If a gate is just a core where part of the, 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 the sample um, is just another axis into the core that you make a copy of the core and you change what's there and that's where the gate looks for its parameter, right? So what looks like a JavaScript function call in Hoon is actually like make a copy of the function, change this one piece of data in the definition of the function and run it then, right? That's how parameter passing works in knock and hoon. So you want to make sure that you're not assuming the part of the subject that you're going to change to pass parameters. You're not assuming the part of the subject that is state, like your loop iterator variable or your gall agent state or anything else that's actually data, right? Because the whole point of it being data is we don't know it ahead of time. But our code, we want to know ahead of time because we want to tell our computer how to run it. So being able to, uh, anal being able to analyze not code and say, okay, we know this and we don't know this or we for conveniently forgot this because it's data and we don't want to make that assumption is the other big piece that allows generating 
hopefully probably machine code from not code and just running that uh, to be feasible and actually obtain real performance gains. Okay, let me let me jump in and then ask the the question that I'm sure everybody wants to know then what kind of performance gains and I mean have you have you done any sort of like uh, comparison there's 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 not enough code written yet to do comparison I'm trying to I'm right now trying to finish up the part where I will not have a code generating interpreter of any sort not even bytecode yet I'll have just a tree walking interpreter, but it will use that stack based allocation scheme. So when that's finished any day now, that will give me some idea of how much I, some idea, not a great idea because I'll be comparing it against a bytecode interpreter in Bear, but some idea of how much performance is won by having a really fast allocator. And how much then is given back by having to copy larger things up the stack? Some, you know, some idea. Then it also lets me, I mean, this is like, it's not the most raw systems programming in the world, but I'm like, I'm adding and decrementing pointers all over the place and uh, um, using tag bits in pointers. So I'm pretty deep in the, the systems programming weeds. And there's even in Rust, there's not a lot of... Uh, extra safety to be had there. So this also just lets me validate that the memory management code actually is reasonably reliable and solid before I then go try to tie on, oh, I'm also generating low-level low code, lower level than C code, from not code. And so if I have, which I inevitably will at some point in the system's uh, development, if I have weird memory bugs or just weird, unexplainable crashes, seg faults, whatever, this is just inevitable in this kind of development. But I want to know, is it coming from the memory code or is it coming from the uh, code generation? I, and so right now I'm writing a very obvious, simple knock interpreter, but one that uses the new memory stuff. And once that is in place and working, and has somewhat validated the memory stuff, then I can move on and start really attacking the code generation stuff. A lot of the time in between when I started working on new Mars and when I got to this point though, was not actually spent writing code, but literally just mentally attacking the problem I was just describing, which is how do I not just turn every function call into uh, a new code generation and lose all my performance again that way. Um, how do I, and this is also a problem, by the way, actually this is how the problem originally came up. This is also a problem for jets. How do I just go to a jet rather than having every time I'm going to invoke a jet, having to go dynamically look up which jet might match? Um, so, and this analysis solves both of these questions because they're roughly equivalent questions, which is like, do I know statically which code I should run here? And can I just put that code there instead of writing code to go look up the code to go, uh, or write to go look up the code or generate the code to then go back and run and then come back to where I was before. Um, so there was quite a bit of time of just like, whiteboarding a design and figuring out whether this was actually possible to do with knock. 
And I'm completely persuaded that it is now. And it's just a question of that. It's now in my mind, just a question of the implementation. What, what is it practically besides like, well, I mean, speed, speed up might be, might be part of the answer here, but, but what does it practically allow us to do that we can't currently do from like the, let's say from the user in, in the user space or the user experience, what can we do with it? You think that that won't be that, that we can't do now with, with old mores? A lot of things because there's a, like the current performance of knock and urbit means that you have to very carefully pick what you're using urbit for. Uh, there's a, um, you can only spin through your, um, events so fast. Specifically, for instance, AIMS is CPU bound. If you're doing a download on AIMS, Urbit is single threaded. So it's going to peg one CPU core, um, just processing the events and effects to receive those packets as they come in and send the acts necessary to keep new packets flowing until your download is done. And with one on my machine, on a, a pretty fast Core i9 processor that I have on my work laptop, um, I was measuring like 100K per second between two fake sods, each running on one of my cores. So with no actual network latency in between, just the bandwidth was limited by the CPU usage. So just as an example of like what the speed limits of Urbit right now mean practically, if this works as well as I hope it does, and I'm not prematurely bragging because there's a whole bunch of ways in which this could not do what I hope it does or just fail entirely or just turn out to have huge practical uh, obstacles. But if this works out how I hope it does, you get much closer to a point where any program you might reasonably think about running on your computer is a program that you could write in Hoon and run on Urbit. You don't get all the way there just with this leap, but the performance part of that is a big part of that. The other thing that's, um, by the way, that's being built for new Mars sort of goes on top of that memory, that new memory system is actually a way to sort of take nouns that are in your Arvo state and save them on disk and only load them into memory when you actually need them. So the current there, you get two gigabytes for all your state for some extra system metadata that's not nouns. There's not very much of that, but there's a little bit of it. And for working memory to actually do the computation for an event. All of that has to fit in one two gigabyte space. So the other thing that's I'm aiming at for new Mars is a memory system where you can actually take a chunk of memory, say, hey, I have references to this, but I'm not computing over it right now. If I do need to compute over it, I'll stop, I'll get it in from disk, and then I'll compute over it. But it can live on disk and it doesn't need to sit in RAM right now. And then it becomes practical to have persisted state on your orbit live on disk while still being part of sort of your working memory. Um, 
And so this is the way out, in my view, of the two gigabyte loom limit. So right now, for, for a number of reasons, but like right now we mostly like don't store images on our orbit, right? We all have to hook S3 buckets up and save the credentials for an S3 bucket in our orbit, right? If this works, if it makes networking right. go fast enough and, co and combined with the stuff that uh, uh, Ted, uh, Robness Rickford is working on, um, I have high hopes that it will. If it makes actually like fetching large chunks of content over orbit networking uh, feasible, and you can save that content just on your disk and not be limited by trying not to use all the RAM on the system just to store a persistent state, then who needs S3 buckets anymore? I keep my pictures, you know, keep my pictures on my orbit. I keep the pictures that are referenced in graphs on my orbit. And, you know, video files, whatever I have disk space for, I can keep on my orbit. And this, so, so this, you could talk about that as just kind of removing a limitation of urban. But what this actually means is that the full power of Urbit's programming model starts to become a little bit more evident. Because as an application developer on the Earth side, you have to worry about the distinction between ephemeral and persistent data. In and and you have mm -hmm. to worry about like you have to open a file and write it and then make sure it's closed and then make sure the computer didn't shut down before you ran a sync right if you want something to actually stick around you have to worry mm -hmm. about serializing it because your disk is memory but it's not the same kind of memory and so you have to worry about turning it into a format that you could stream out to disk and then stream back in and effectively parse back into something that you're going to work with in your program in a system like it in it right now in urbit you don't have to do this if you want data to stick around it goes in your gall agent state as a noun and it's just there the issue is a practical issue in the implementation of the urbit system right now where there's only so much you can put in there if you take that away now the system is managing for you, hey, this is on disk, or this is in memory. You can't lose it because, it, aside from corrupting your event log and your snapshot, because it's in your event log, right? You'll reconstruct it by replaying your event log in the worst case. But in terms of where to put it, we worry about putting it on disk for you at the system level. And you just worry about saying, hey, this atom that represents a uh, JPEG or um, this uh, list of atoms that represents um, H.264 frames for a movie is just in my state and it's just there. And when I need it, I can go access it. Maybe it's in a, a keyed map or maybe it's in a graph store entry or something. Don't, that's up to you. But you don't have to worry about opening and closing files. You don't have to worry about low-level implementation details of how state gets persisted. Things are persisted. And the system just makes sure that you have access to them when you need them. And if you have a system where you can do that, and, and it's actually implemented that the system is handling sticking stuff on disk when it needs to, 
and making it available to you in the same idiom that the rest of your program is written in, it's all just nouns, then it's it's hard to overstate how much of a burden that takes off the working application programmer, I think. That's great. Edwards, I'm very excited. I, I think we have to draw it to a close. Let me just say thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is this has been fun. Thank you for listening. If you want more Stack, follow us on Twitter at Stack underscore podcast or our dad's internet presence at Urbit Media or the website Urbit.media. And remember, unless it's resting on a spaghetti noodle base, you are not eating chili.